Hi there, I'm Jay Comfrey and you're listening to High Performance. This is our gift to you for free every single week. It's the podcast that reminds you that it's within your ambition, your purpose, your story. It's within. However, sometimes your truth and your story remains within because it's too hard to let it out. And this episode is in celebration of the fact that Dame Kelly Holmes has finally come out as being gay. And I think that the reason why we wanted to re-release this episode today was just to continue the conversation about the fact that to overcome a stigma can take decades. It can come, as Kelly's admitted, at a huge personal cost. In her words, she said, finally, I can breathe. So we'll share the episode with you in just a couple of moments. But myself and Professor Damien Hughes, an expert in high-performing team cultures, we just wanted to have a quick chat before we play you what Kelly shared with us. And actually, Damien, it was it was right at the start of our high-performance journey. It was only episode 10 when we sat down and spoke with Dame Kelly Holmes. What did you feel and think when you when you saw the news? I was delighted that she finally felt that she was in a position and that society was also meeting her in that same position where she felt she could be true, truly herself and be authentic. I think all, all our high performers talk about this value of acting with integrity and the importance of authenticity. So for Kelly to finally be in a position to feel that she can do that and be honest is really heartening and encouraging. And to be quite frank, I'm delighted for her. I think I had... Mixed emotions on her behalf, really, because part of me is delighted at the moment that, you know, Dame Kelly feels that now is the time that she can come out and she will be accepted for that. Obviously, we've just seen Jake Daniels come out um, as a, a gay footballer playing in English football. Craig Napier and Lloyd Wilson, who are referees in Scotland, they've also come out as gay. Josh Cavallo as well. But then I, I saw the quote from her saying that she's lived with fear for 34 years. She, she said, I'm exhausted, didn't she? And I don't want to hide it anymore. And I, and I suppose it's amazing and brilliant for her. And I'm so, so pleased. And the, the, I'm sure the relief is incredible. But 34 years of, as in her words, you know, living with fear and finding it debilitating is so sad in so many ways. And I guess that it's a reminder for the listeners of high performance. And it's a really strong and important reminder that you can have all the outside perceived success. You know, Dame Kelly has won two Olympic gold medals, but all of that outside success is never going to move you closer to inner peace. We repeat this message over and over again, don't we, on the podcast? And I think it's easy for people to dismiss it or just say, oh, it's a cliche, you know, to, to be at ease with yourself. But this is the perfect example of why it is so important. Yep, and it's a great example of that great of that quote that we've used numerous times in our interviews, Jacob. Be kind because everyone's fighting a battle that you know nothing about. And I think like when we met Kelly, we wouldn't have had a clue that she was living with this sense of fear of somebody outing her or discussing her sexuality. You know, it also reminds me of that famous quote from Dr. Daniel Amen that talks about at 18, we don't do lots of things because we worry what other people think about us. When we get to 40, we stop caring what other people think about us. And it's only when we get to 60, we realise that nobody was thinking that much about us anyway. And I'm just glad that Kelly's got to the place of realising that she doesn't have to care what anybody thinks about her. She just has to care about what those in her own inner circle think and make sure that they matter. It's still a reminder though, isn't it, that all of us, need to do more to work together to, 
to fight any stigma for LGBTQ plus people, particularly in sport, and create a world where they feel they can be themselves. Because I think at the moment, yes, you know, we've seen Jake Daniels, we've seen um, a few people now involved in professional sport come out as gay, but there are so many people, household names today, living with the same fear that Dame Kelly Holmes has lived with for 34 years. Yeah, I'm I'm reminded of the famous Arthur Schopenhauer, the German philosopher, spoke about three stages of change, Jake. He spoke about the first stage when when change occurs is people ridicule it. They go, oh, that's ridiculous. That'll never happen. The second stage is the violent opposition stage. And then the third stage that you get to is you accept it as common sense. And I just hope that for those pioneers in the LGBT plus community, feel that we're coming to stage three of Schopenhauer's stages of change where people are just accepting it as common sense. Why would you not feel that you could come out and just be your authentic self? And, uh, you know, Kelly's been a pioneer in so many different ways for for young women in terms of going into athletics and the path that she's forged in, in her post-athletics career for young athletes to go and achieve similar heights. And I just hope that... She, again, can be a pioneer for people that may be in a similar position, coming to terms with their sexuality, that feel they can just talk so freely and openly about it without being judged. Right. Should we uh, should we play the episode, Damien? Yeah, this is a few years old now, but I loved it. I thought it was a real privilege to be in her company and hear her story, and I hope that people enjoy listening to it again. Okay, well, uh, this was recorded uh, in central London. Uh, actually before we'd released a single episode of the High Performance Podcast. So really when we recorded this with Dame Kelly, this whole thing was something of an experiment really. And the conversation we had, you, I know you are going to love. Um, and it, it's tinged with a bit of sadness for me and Damien, because in, in the last couple of days, Dame Kelly has come out and said, you know, 2020 was the hardest year for her. You know, she went into a very dark and difficult place. And the important thing now is that Dame Kelly has come out. She's told the world the struggles that she's had and um, let's hope that it's a positive and uplifting experience for her from here on in because I'll tell you what, she absolutely deserves it. Right, here we go then. This is Dame Kelly Holmes on the High Performance Podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, 
visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. And look, you can't do a job like this alone, thankfully. Damien Hughes, professor and expert in the field of high-performing teams and cultures, is alongside me once again. Um, Yet today, Professor... Uh, we're not talking about someone who excelled necessarily in a team. We're talking about someone whose probably biggest moment in their life came as individual glory. This person is fascinating. Uh, when I told my mum who we were meeting today, this was the most excited she's been of all our guests because uh, she really admires this person for both her strength and resilience, but also for her humility and just her quiet dignity. So I'm really looking forward to... Uh, exploring a little bit more let's do it then let's dive into a conversation about living a high (laughs) performance life with someone who suddenly is blushing um (laughs) she conquered the world from the british military to the british olympic team today's guest though didn't stop at double olympic glory she went on to form foundations to take part in tv shows to write books to become a dame to return to the military roots and so much more so what has she learned along the way and even if you can't run fast how can her high performance life inspire you Welcome to the podcast, Dame Kelly Holmes. Thank you. Nice to see you. There you go. Where do we go from there? That's it, done. It's Colonel Dame, isn't it? Colonel now, yes. Wow. Colonel with the Royal Armoured Corps. Which is really nice because it you realise how so I was in the military for ten years and then I continued my athletics career and then obviously been out for a while, but you realise I look back now and realise the values that I had from the army still instilled through my other role. So, you know, about courage and discipline and respect and selfless commitment, all of those things are very much what I probably adhere to with everything I do. So it's quite nice. Why did you feel the need to join the army at 18? What was the thinking behind that? Um, Well, I was not academic at all at school, at all. And so... You know, being in a classroom, getting exams, that didn't happen. Uh, and what happened was, is I had a careers officers came, basically, and they showed us, like, the Army, Navy and the Air Force. And I wasn't inspired by the Air Force because of, you know, it showed the administration side. I couldn't swim when I was 14, so ships at sea was not going to happen. And then I saw these soldiers, and they were just, all they were doing is screaming and shouting at all the other soldiers, literally going underneath the scramble net and over the 12th at war. And I was like, oh, my God. And it felt like a sense of... If I could get into the army, I proved I could be someone. And if I could get into the army, it'd be about discipline and hard work. And I felt like I needed that structure almost when I was a young person. So, yeah, so I tried to get in and I got in when I was 17 and 10 months old. So was that structure something that you'd been lacking? Because your mum had you at a very young age and then you were in foster care at certain times during your childhood. Yeah, Yeah, sorry, in in the care homes. Mm. Was it the structure that appealed to you then or was it something other than that yeah I think it was definitely structure I just I think I liked the intensity of what the army could bring because it had the sporting element but I didn't join for the sport I did join to meet people to be able to potentially travel to actually have a career because I never know I never heard the word university when I was a kid I didn't have no idea about what I would do and um, so my early early days actually I you know I got I did my work experience at a local leisure centre then I did some work over at a local army barracks and then I was a nursing assistant which was completely random but it was about helping people and then I kind of just felt like that pull of army life would teach me about life and 
teach me to grow up quickly and to do something that nobody else had done in my area. You know, all my friends stayed local, you know, still doing the jobs that they were doing when they left school. I didn't want to stay local because I thought, well, what is there for me? It was in me to do and try something that no one else was doing to prove I could be good. I think it was more a mindset for that. But your mum fascinated me. So when mm. I was reading up about your background, and I think I said in the introduction that my mum uh, <laughs> has a real soft spot for you in terms of because I think she saw the vulnerability of you, but that courage to keep persevering. Mm. But that's very much the description that when I read about your mum, she was a she was somebody that had endured some quite difficult times, but mm. was that constant for you? And I was interested in terms of what traits did you feel you inherited from her? Yeah, I used to sort of look and try and see, you know, I used to say, to you, you and my mother, I can't think, because I mean, that's so different in one way. You know, <laughs> I was so sporty, driven, you know, I didn't want to sit down. She was just like, oh, my God, <laughs> relax, love. Um, but... I think I took from her, so she had me when she was 17, um, you know, in the 70s when it was very taboo to be with a mixed race guy who she had had me with. I didn't know I didn't know him. And um, when we went back to Kent, she uh, was told by her dad, my granddad, that she couldn't look after me until she could look after herself because she was, you know, 17, having yeah. a kid, bringing back whiter than white Kent. And uh, so I then got put in the care home. But before that, we were in mum and baby units. You know, she'd have her own flat. And then when uh, the adoption services came, literally to take me away that day with a family, she had to sign the papers, but she refused to sign the papers. You know, I'm going to make sure I get her back. So what I had, I know, is that fight. You know, that kind of, no, if I want to do something, I'm going to do it. And that I know that I've kind of picked up with her, that kind of resilience to when you get against all odds, you can give up. Or you can go, I'm not going to give up. So I feel, you know, I'm really pleased that I've had that part of her in there. Anything to do with sport or anything else? <laughs> there was nothing. <laughs> right. There was nothing. Um, but yeah, so we had a, you know, very on and off relationship because when you're a teenager, you know, I grew up with my stepdad, Mick, since I was five. And then she sort of left him at 17. So I more got close to her, him rather than her. And then I went into the army and we didn't speak. And then you start getting back because she's your mum. And I didn't know any other blood related people until I met my sister and brother when I was 16 in a supermarket. But hey, that's another story. Wow. Um, what a story. That's another story. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so it's just those little, I suppose, elements of your background. So I think the key for me is I didn't feel I had a really good identity when I was younger. Yep. So I was in school, in both my primary school and my secondary school, the only mixed race person. I didn't have any sense of how I could connect educationally. I think if they'd actually looked into it like they do now, I probably was dyslexic. You know, I couldn't read properly. Yep. I didn't write properly, all of those things. So I just had to go through life fighting to be good. And then of course sport, which we'll talk about, became my driver, my identity. But back then, you know, I, I think I learned quite early on and I don't know why. When you're different, it doesn't mean you should then have that attitude that that's a negative. I always thought, I'm different, so I'm unique. I don't want to be like everybody else. I want to stand out. So I had a different, in my head, you know, when you're in the middle of a group of white kids and you're the only brown person and, and bony M brown girl in the ring comes on, you can take that two ways, right? When you're stuffed in the middle, you can either take it like, ah, they're picking on you, or you can go, yeah, tra-la-la-la, you know, and I was like, <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I'm the sugar and the plum, 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 you know, and I had that attitude really young and I'm really pleased that I did because I How don't know How useful has that been in the life that you've lived? Always. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, to have an identity that actually, if you're different, it doesn't matter. There is research on this that's been done with sort of high performance, especially in the field of Olympians and sport, that that from trauma creates mm-hmm. triumph. You know, mm-hmm. like those difficult experiences give you some of the the characteristics to then go on and perform at an elite level. How how much would you identify with that, Kelly? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I suppose. I suppose maybe sports people have it embedded in people say is it nature or nurture I mean probably an element of both but I think somewhere you have to have it instilled with you to have that inner determination that fight you know and that kind of like I'm gonna go for it. Was there ever a moment where you decided you were going to take the fight option as opposed to being perceived as a victim? Just as a child you know I just think that I you know it's quite hard to comprehend because when you're a young person how do you have those skills sets to do that but I just felt like all I knew back then was everybody that I see as we do in the room now everyone was white in front of me so I never thought anything because I can't see myself so I just thought I was the same as everybody else you know there's only other people identifying that you're different but skin colour doesn't mean that inside you how you're born how you're brought up how you're educated what you're told what you're taught is different to that next person I wasn't brought up in a Jamaican Mm. family or in a black environment I don't know it I have no connection but it's hard to articulate that to people that don't understand it whereas in my youth it was just like they're all my mates you know we were just friends so I think I was lucky that I didn't have that kind of you know hard-hitting bullying or anything when I was younger so I think then I took that into secondary school where I just felt useless all the time I was outside the classroom. I felt like I'm just a failure. No one give a shit because I was just like, you know, just the girl with no name until athletics took its hold, you know, and then suddenly I'm winning everything. You know, my PE's teacher's saying, like, if you're going to be good, if you want to be good, you've got to start focusing and believing you can be good because you're better than all of these at this. You might be outside the classroom and you know, you've got to sort that out, but you're better than everybody here. And I was just like, oh, my God, somebody's actually told me I can be good. So was sport the first time in your life that you experienced success? Yeah. In terms at what of age? the feeling... Within six months of starting running, I was all England school champion when I was 13. But then I won the mini youth Olympic Games when I was 17. So I actually won a gold medal in the 800 metres when I was 17 years old. See, that is absolutely vital, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. you've gone through between 13, 14, 15 years of being told you're different, Mm -hmm. being the only mixed race person in a white environment, Mm -hmm. being chucked out of classrooms, Mm -hmm. going into children's homes, wondering what your family history is wondering whether you'll ever have a relationship with your family Mm. and then suddenly sport is the first moment where you go wow that is what it feels like a to be successful but also to be celebrated by other people yeah so when you look at it like that no wonder that then determined your life because Mm -hmm. suddenly you related sport to feeling like yes, like you've never felt before. Absolutely. I mean, when I won that first English schools championships, 1,500 metres, I came back and there was all this bunting outside the house, you know, the old-fashioned bunting. With a, I've got a picture of it somewhere, you know, like a, a piece of white paper with a handwritten, welcome home, yeah, Kelly yeah. type thing. And there's me and my stepdad <laughs> outside with a big afro. And then people are just like, you wow. know, you, those little things, just like, wow. And then... Sport literally took up my life because we didn't have a bus to go to school, so I used to cycle to school, do whatever at school, 
cycle to training, do training, come back. That was my life as 18. I didn't go out partying, didn't go out with mates. I went around the house maybe a couple of times. I loved it. So where did that mindset then come from? I loved winning. Watching the Olympic Games when I was 14, I watched Sebastian Coe within 1,500 metres. Was this the 84 or 84? Yeah, 84. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm that old. 84. (laughs) (laughs) 84. Olympic Games, Sebastian Coe won the 1500 metres. I was already 1500 metre running by then. I literally got goosebumps inside me, like in my core. And I went back to school and I told my best friends, Kerry, Lara and Kim, I am going to be Olympic champion. And they said, yes, you probably are, because that's the only thing you're bloody good at. (laughs) (laughs) Which was true. (laughs) Um, But it was just that moment of... Wow, I love the whole thing about the Olympics, you know, kind of the Olympic rings, what it meant, you know, the history of it, seeing success, people on a rostrum, national anthem playing, British flag flying, like med around the neck. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I just felt it. It was just something like literally went through my body. And I knew that day that's what I wanted to be. But you um, used a lovely phrase before, or quite a moving phrase, mm. sorry, not a lovely one where you said about, I was the girl with no name. Mm. And how much of it was just having someone know your name that was the appeal of that yeah all of it just having like that you're here you know I always believe that one person can change somebody's life mum was my PE teacher you know we're still friends to this day to my PE teacher because it was her that actually said to me Kelly you can be good just having an identity is so important you know for anybody knowing where they're going to go what they're going to do what they want to do finding passion I feel lucky that I had the upbringing I had lucky that I had those feelings inside me at a very young age you know because two dreams were to be in the army as a physical train instructor and to be Olympic champion and I've done both you know who else at 14 can actually say I had these dreams they were going to take forever they were the fluffy cloud up there it might take 20 years for one of them you know and however many for the other one but I did it so actually everything before that period of time was probably that little bit of grounding fight for it if you want it don't give up When you're an adult, you start thinking about all the little incidences that have happened along the way where you could have just given up, you could have cried, you could have said, I'm not good enough yourself, you could have listened to what people said. But I believe that that, to become the Olympic champion that I did was some of the traits from being young, thinking, no, I'm going to do this, You you think I can't, I'm going to. But that was in sport. That's the only thing I knew I could do it in. I couldn't do it in anything else. I remember reading that you produced your training diary on the 1st of January 2004 and there was a really moving passage where you wrote about I've sacrificed so much to Mm. get to this and I just want a year where I can get through it without injury and setback to be able to go and achieve my destiny was the phrase you used. How much did you ever go to the trouble of reflecting backwards and and, and writing down all those obstacles you'd overcome to give you that sense of confidence? As an athlete I wrote my diaries every single year still have my ones from when I was 13 so I wrote diaries you were doing that at 13 as well though yeah just writing well just notes about main training like how I felt or where did that come from then because that's very smart to do that when you when you talk about the fact that really everything was a bit of a struggle apart from the Mm. sport so how did you suddenly apply such a kind of smart scientific approach I loved it. I loved it. You know, literally, it was my life <laughs> back then. So everything I wanted to be Olympic champion. You can't just turn up and be an Olympic champion. But who told you that though? That you can't just turn up and be Olympic champion? Because I I knew that to to be able to get into Olympic games, you'd have to break two minutes. You know, I was running two fifty something as a kid. You know, it's like this isn't. Yeah, yeah. So I knew it was a long term piece. But I suppose 
within so that diary you referred to with the 2004 when I wrote that passage in the diary which I then put in my autobiography it was really about everything that I felt like I just kept thinking I was cursed at this time I think and everything was knocking me back so basically in 2003 for the listeners who don't know during my career I was already 12 years as an international athlete I'd left the army uh, when I was 27 I'd been in there for 10 years um, I had just a massive breakdown like literally to the point that I didn't want to be here anymore and I was in a training camp getting ready for world championships I'd already been injured for many years but won lots of medals you know I was having highs and lows for all these years fighting back no one knew the story behind half of my medals I'd be on a track and get a silver or a bronze and people were like oh well she looks silver or bronze and it wasn't you know wasn't champion just like you have no idea I shouldn't have even been at this track you know there's all those things that was happening this period of time I was getting ready for world champs uh, we were in a camp and I went into the bathroom and basically broke down crying inside screaming inside you know when you see somebody in pain you see their heart breaking but you can't shout it out because people are outside saw some scissors starting to cut myself became a self-harmer that day didn't know anything about self-harming didn't know about depression didn't know about breakdown did not want to be there I mean how I didn't do something else was because I still had a dream I try to articulate it on stage when half of you is actually dying inside and half of you wants to be successful and driven as that's the hardest Mm. fight it's not necessarily the fight of what you're doing because at that time it's red mist, black dog, black hole, yeah, yeah. tunnel, whatever. But I had such something inside me. I always believed I'd be Olympic champion. I don't know what it was. Even through the depths of despair, even through the injuries I had, ruptured calves, torn Achilles, you know, stress patches, glandular fever, all in my intellectual career. I always woke up thinking I'm going to be Olympic champion. And I don't know why that was. I always believe in fate. I mean, you know, there's a big thing in fate. I believe that went through the journey, could have given up, didn't. Then I get two gold medals, you know, so payback. There's your reward. (laughs) But yeah, there's little things which make you as a high performer, because also different, I think something different in an individual sport has to be some resolve inside you that can go through a pain barrier and that's whether that's physical or emotional that kind of can push to that next limit push to see how far you can get push to know where you can take yourself and I think I just kept pushing those little milestones and obviously uh, the breakdown was because I'd never really reflected on everything before it's a different era back then you know you didn't talk about mental health when you went on a physio bed they're treating the injury did you feel it coming the breakdown do you did you sense it was on its way no because I just coped with the highs and lows for yeah. so long you know it was almost like I was going through the same old routine you know I'd get injured fight through it get back get a medal get injured fight through it it was just like normal it was becoming like oh, for fuck's sakes you know give me a, give me a break <laughs> and when, <laughs> I mean? you, when you talk about going through a breakdown yeah. for people that haven't suffered with mental health problems mm. Is it you wake up in the morning and something happens and that's it, the the breakdown has happened? Is it an instantaneous moment? I think so. The I think the actual breakdown part is Do you remember you, where you were unexpected. when it happened? Yeah, I was in France, I was in uh our apartment and I went into the, the toilet because I had another little niggle and I just literally exploded. I mean I can't explain any more. Lit in the mirror and 
everything inside me was just like this explosion of hatred, emotion, disappointment. I felt like somebody was literally wanting me to fail, like literally saying you're not going to do this. And I just couldn't cope. And I think then that's the point is you can have uh, you can have a bad day, you can have stress, you can have anxiety, you can have depression. We can have all of those emotions. We can just have a bad day. But the moment you have a breakdown, that's a different thing. I think there's a chemical imbalance that's just gone and broken, you know, and I was broken. But in hindsight, is there anything that you think you could, any steps you could have taken, mm. you know, before you reach that moment of breakdown? Maybe in sport, people recognising that emotional roller coaster. Because when you give your life to sport, there's no guarantees, is there? You know, I had a, remember I had a secured job, I had a pay packet each month I had status in the army yeah. I was a sergeant by then I knew my roles my expectations I was comfortable with that when I left I was putting all my eggs let's say in one basket to become Olympic champion so what happens then is that every time you're doing something you don't want negative around you you don't want somebody saying you can't achieve because I'm yeah. thinking I've got to get to the next games you know you have commonwealth games european champs or world champs and olympics in that four year cycle so every year to prove that you're one of the best in the world you've got to be at that championships and you've got to win a medal you know so you can't just go oh, I'm not going to go this year it's like no there's no no mm. there's no not you know and and being paid as an athlete, you only ever get paid if you get a sponsor or if you compete. I was injured so many times on the circuit. I didn't get paid to run because I was injured so much. So I'm putting everything in. The medal was never about money for me, never about fame, never about anything. It was about purely proving to myself I can be good from back in the day. Yep. I didn't really care about the money at that stage, but you are putting your life into a dream. So did you mention your breakdown to anyone in British athletics? So in 2000, no, 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 I didn't mention anyone. I didn't know how to. Uh, How do you explain that you've just gone through something you don't know you've had? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. We talk often on this podcast mm. about fault versus responsibility. Mm. You are the epitome mm. of fault versus responsibility because it wasn't your fault that you went into care homes. It wasn't your fault you didn't know your family. Mm. It wasn't your fault that you weren't right at school and you suffered with dyslexia. It wasn't your fault that you had a nervous breakdown. But through every single step of the way, you had to take on the responsibility. Mm. And I think it's such a strong message for people listening to this that you can't live a life of blame and live a life of looking at fault live a life of being a victim mm. you have no matter how bad it gets and you know you're talking about 
you know, contemplating the ultimate act and yep. self-harming, no matter how bad it gets, trying to find a mindset of responsibility is yeah. so important. Oh, it really is. And I think if people listening get to those stages, I th- I've always had this thing around how do you turn a negative into a positive? Because I think there's always positives into anything that we do. So even at the brink of having a breakdown, if in one side of me saying, but you know, I haven't given up on my athletics yet. I'm still, this is why I've got to that point. My dream is still to come. I was able to change that mindset through one bit, even though I'm emotionally still suffering because you're a human being. As a sports person, having that ability to snap into where's those positives. And I think when I was at the depths of despair, I kept thinking, this is because I want it so much. You know, I could give up. I could give up tomorrow. Why am I going through this? I want this so badly. Only I can do that now. So I can pick myself up. And I used to think to myself, especially back then, I looked back and go, so I've won up until that point. I'd won nine major medals, right? And six years of those had been in, hadn't having injuries, yet I've still come back with medals. I then go at the the lowest of the low I'm getting ready for world championships and I win a silver medal at that world championships and I stood in Russian with that round my neck no one knew what was going on no one knew what was happening each night what I was going through and that you take as a strength of character so I think some people have to remember they've always had happiness somewhere in their life they've always had things they know they can do they've always had experiences that have been great and good so when you're at that depth of despair there's a reason why you've got to that point you know there's always a reason why we have a breakdown there's always a reason why we go to people go to drugs alcohol self-harming in the way I did cutting there's a reason for it so I knew at that time my reason was I was hard on myself because I wanted to be good that's throughout my whole life hard on myself because I believed that Olympic dream was gonna come and I didn't refuse to give up on it. You're the only person, no one else around you, the only person who lives with that, yeah. if only I did. So when you say about this kind of responsibility stuff and you mentioned about did anyone help you, in 2004 at the beginning in January I set up a mentoring program called um, On Camp with Kelly. Yeah. And what this program was, was to help junior athletes learn what it takes to become world class. But everything, not just the running around a track, because if you're running around a track, you're on my program if you're good enough anyway. It was, can you go through hard times? Can you go for people putting you down? Can you go through the pressures of education with your mates going out partying and you've got the talent they haven't, but they're coercing you to go off to there? And I was like, I'm going to tell you, teach you everything it's taken me to get to where I've got. This is before I won my two gold medals. So I selected eight girls, was going to take them to South Africa in the October. Can you imagine? They're going with an international athlete, uh, middle distance runner to South Africa. Then I won, won two gold medals. And I came back and everyone said to me, there's no way you're going to take those eight girls. You know, I had all these jobs open to me. I could have done everything. And I went, do you know what? My biggest value of everything I've learned is to take these girls to South Africa. Now I've gone through highs, lows, success. And I took them to South Africa for a month. 15, 16, 17-year-olds. had two sort of helpers. And in the end, that programme developed 65 international athletes. And these girls all stuck to their sports. They transitioned because it was about what does it take to achieve in your life what you want to achieve 
It takes everything. It takes hard times. It takes tears. It takes resilience, hard work, commitment, dedication, people putting you down. It takes all of those, doesn't it? To be good. So if I was one of those young girls uh, um, mm. turning up on this camp, mm. what would you give me as a proportionality of how much of your your success was down to pure talent your ability to run fast and things like that and how much of it was down to all the other stuff the ability to cope with those issues well, that you've just told 20 percent of talent because there's so many talented people and then 80 percent of going through everything else to get there wow okay you know, if i go on a track at olympic games you know, 0.05 of a second separated the first four of us in that 800 metres. We're yeah. all bloody good runners. Yeah, yeah. What take? You know, had I given up, I wouldn't have been part of that four. You know, so actually, there's that inner bit—the belief and your ability to push and to trust yourself. There's so many times I probably say in my whole career, only four times out of 12 years did I have that totally in the zone where I felt like I'm floating. You know, two of those were at the Olympics and one was in breaking the British record in 97, 1500 metres. And one was in Sydney when I was told there's no way I'm going to get there. I'd got a 12 centimetre tear in my calf in the January. I was told by everyone that you're 30, you're not going to get there. You know, you might as well just carry on, wait for the next kind of season to come. And I'd already gone to the first Olympics when I was serving in the British Army and I ended up getting a stress fracture. I still ran. I got into the heat semi-final. I came fourth. I got pipped on the line by a tenth of a second, running with a stress fracture, right? I had injections into the bone site to numb it. I was emotionally in pain, physically in pain. I said to myself, I'm not going to my next Olympics without coming back with a medal. I told her I wasn't going to get there. I had six weeks of running only that year. Everything else was in a pool, a stepper, cross trainer, bike, everything, weights, training. My head was like, I'm going to do this. I got there and I got bronze medal. It's fascinating hearing you describe that Sydney Games because I remember that. But those two events where you won the gold in, in, uh, in Athens, like, the way I remember it is there was a real sense of calmness about you during the yeah. race because I remember you like tactically you let others go off and you just sat and you held your ground mm. and then you came and 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 had a strong finish mm. when did you learn that emotional control that was obviously lacking in Sydney to panic at that moment so then four years later come and yeah. be so serene I had a totally different mindset going in 2004 because what had happened to me 2003 like totally I just knew that the only thing that was letting me down was my body and health so you know because I'd learned even all these other things so I'd said to instead of telling people around me the emotional side of what's happening I told my physio I, I need you to be the best physio you can be I want to be the best in the world you're already good physio but you need to be great like almost like it was selfish I said you need to live my life you know I need to be stalking you that's literally what I did a training partner who was a guy who gave up his athletics career that year Anthony Whiteman who was a 1500 meter runner for Great Britain he was lacking in motivation, kind of wanted a bit of a kick up the arse. And I said, like, would you come and train with me? And then prior to um, Athens, we were in holding camp in Cyprus. And um, because he was a man, it was faster. I could just run. I knew the times. And he did. And quickly, the story goes on that after Athens, he then broke the world record for the men's over 40s, uh, 1500 metres and become world record holder for the Mars. You know, so you so raised the bar for raised him Raised the bar well. for him. So what I did in 2004, I didn't feel at that time I could get any lower than I'd been. And because I was still there, that made me even more thinking... I can I can do this, you know, because I can't go any lower. Yet I'm still achieving, you know. So I changed my mindset. Hence why I wrote that bit in my book. And then, so what happened was, I decided that 
I need my legs to do the talking because when you go in sport and you recognise you end up getting, especially in your own sport, people want to know how's it going, papers are all after you, it comes to Olympic year, they try to put people up on a pedestal and I just thought, I don't want that. Do you know what? The only thing that's going to actually make me feel good is me being good. So I ended up not doing any media that year until right before the Olympic Games. Paula Radcliffe was put on the pedestal. You know, everyone was going to, she was going to be our golden girl, which actually helped everybody else because no one else, <laughs> no one was interested in us, you know what I mean? So then what happened was, is the change around was that I had a different attitude to high performance. Like I knew I could do this. You know, when you've won that many medals with that many setbacks, it's like, for me, fate and staying injury-free. So anyway, what happened was, is I went to World Championships, fell in the indoors. And I thought, oh, you know, like banging down the thing. And I thought, that's all right. It's just a blip. And I changed my attitude to feeling like everything's against me, to feeling, pick yourself back up. You're not injured. You took responsibility. You took responsibility. I took responsibility of my team. I said, this is what I expect from you. This is what I know I want to do and what I can do. And then we got to holding camp. Training was like literally going off the roof. But I'd lost every single 1,500 metre run that year. And I'd won every single 800. And that was a psychological thing. I was wanting 1,500 metres so bad, I run pants. 800, I didn't think I was going to take part. It's like running how I should. And that's how your brain, you know, if you're good at anything, one minute we can do it, the next minute it's like, we feel like we're useless at something because we haven't clicked that brain in the switch up so anyway I get to the Olympic Games training had gone brilliant hadn't been injured for the rest of the year I was eating better sleeping better happy relaxed and I could run and then when we got to the 800 metres because I only decided that I was going to do both like two days before I went into Athens because I thought well what have I got to lose if I'll come back with two medals of any colour or a great end to a season I had a completely different approach it wasn't all I've got to I've got to I've got to I almost took that off of me a bit the pressure and said run how you run that's a question that I wanted to ask you when you were talking about that being in that bathroom in uh, in France do you feel you could have achieved more if you'd have started to be be kinder to yourself Mm. much earlier yeah, I mean, I could have won those Olympics in my first Olympic Games when I come forth with stretcher. I could have won in Sydney, yeah. but I was always under pressure almost because of like the injuries and then putting myself through that, got to get back, got to get back. I never reflected, you know, you don't reflect. When you're on a physio bed, it's all about get that injury sorted, get that injury sorted. No one really sort of took you on, on board and said, okay, so you're going through an injury. This is going to impact your anxiety. This is going to impact the stress that you're Mm. feeling you're going to be worried you're going to this you're going to be that it's not just about the injury never had those conversations you also that was an era though where it was all about be brilliant push yourself Mm -hmm. be the best don't be weak Mm. no one in that era was kind to themselves no that was seen as a weakness i think in that era wasn't it and i think now we're much more open to Mm. if you're good to yourself mentally Mm. you that's not a weakness anymore well, in 2003, no one talked about it. When I wrote my autobiography, 
nobody was talking about it in 2005 I hadn't even told my mum friends family no one even knew about what was going on in my life up until I wrote my book the year after I retired not one person your phone goes off the hook anyone. then when the book comes out I imagine then it goes mental but then yeah. you know how many people remember me on the front pages of the national newspaper saying I'd sell time hardly anyone because it was just like fish and chip paper she said something let's you know next day it's gone and it was only sort of 2017 when I was on a TV show that we're talking about it again and everyone's going oh my god really and I said yeah I've been talking about it since 2005 you're now listening That's and sport change. has now changed That's change. sport has also changed at a high level instead of just having a sports psychology focus where it's about can I get to that track without feeling nervous sick yeah. you know can't get there properly and I need somebody to guide me through it they now know that they need to talk beforehand about the process of how you're going to get through that journey where do you draw the line in terms of you share a lot of this around your mental health and I think it, mm. that it, it's a real testament to you because there's a real vulnerability in what you're sharing but I think it's really helpful but then I've been interested that you draw the line at some things where you just won't discuss it and that's mm. not for debate mm. and I'm just interested in terms of wh- where you choose to draw the line in mm. terms of what you share versus what you keep private and what advice would you give to some of those young athletes that that were listening yeah, well, for anybody really. I mean, we live our own lives and it's only us that we are living our life for essentially. You know, we might have family and friends and people around us, but essentially it's our life, right? We've all got this you know, ability to want to be good at something or to drive. And I feel like when I share anything to do with the journey of athletics and the emotion and the breakdown and that, that's a human trait that lots of people will come across barriers and setbacks. Like when I talked about bereavement with my mum, no one talks about these things, but why? You're not happy just because they're now, you know, had the funeral. It's still freaking in you. Like I breathed for 18 months, I was in a right state. I believe that there's things that will help people by me sharing those things. There's other things that I've chosen that most people know me because I won two gold medals, right? They don't know me for any other reason, really, apart from what now they're getting to know. But essentially, most people know me because I won two gold medals. So I believe, how do I inspire people, not just athletes, anybody, to get the best out of themselves, to be the best version of themselves, to work hard, to be motivated, to take responsibility, to look at yourself, be respectful, be respectful, have values. If I can pass those, that's going to help a lot of other people with their mindset on expectation that they should get something back for it or actually should be given to you easy or it's an easy road to get to success no it's freaking not so I shared my life and my journey and what happened to me during those heights of my season because most people have no idea that I went through that yet I then go even if you've had the worst time of your life ups downs barriers whatever they perceive to be in your life and remember never never ever um compare yourself to someone else's life you know because what I've had happen to me might not ever be as bad as somebody else but I'm not living their life I'm living mine so what I've had happen to me is was hell for me and I always believe if I can articulate that in a way that's motivating that people can, can look at their life and go okay this might be happening or happen but I can actually do something else with it or I can take the uh, positives out of the negatives see other people still being successful even though they've had bad time that has to be something that motivates others so I've chosen that is the line that I go all about 
me and my drive and the emotional side of it that I think will impact a larger people in society. I love the clarity of where you choose to draw the line though. I think it's really powerful in this day and age that there's some things you'll discuss and some you won't and you defend that. And people, yeah, and people have a, a, a decision to do it when they want. And, you know, as I've got older, I never used to speak about anything close to me, like nothing ever. I was a closed book, like literally I've always been a closed book. And now I'm a bit more me. I show my personality more on TV. I look how I want to look now. I don't conform. I don't, you know, you come back from the Olympic Games and everyone's going to these events you know everyone's got women got long hair they're all in their dresses and I still wear dresses if I want to dress up or whatever but I felt like I didn't really again know my identity my mum passed away the day she passed away I had this hair shaved off my undercut because I'd been speaking about it for ages and I thought shall I shan't I what people think what will people say what will people think I look like and I thought I don't care because actually I've still got my values I'm still respectful I still am me as a person but I want to be who I actually want to be so I'll show it in this way but I don't have to then speak about every single part of my life there's a book by a man called Bob Iger mm-hmm. CEO of Disney and in it he talks about the fact that being completely you 100% honest in everything you say and everything you do mm-hmm. not putting on a front in any respect is almost like a superpower mm-hmm. and once you're brave enough to go this is me if you don't like it fine but this is me and that's all I can be it's a really liberating place to get to I think and yeah. I'm so pleased that you feel that you're there and well I feel that I'm you know, there you, you know look, there's still things bright. that I wouldn't choose to discuss but that's just because you just why 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 you know at what point yeah, exactly. you know you go you might get to part in your life at a certain situation it's like when I started to speak about this it was a point in my life it was right other things that I've come through I've there's a point in my life that it's right the bereavement I had to go through that to now talk about bereavement I didn't when my granddads and my nans died because it didn't have that same thing there'd be a point in my life somewhere else that something else will come out because I think it's right but at the moment you don't have to shout anyone can do what they want in life if you want to shout about something shout if you don't don't and finally having waited so long did it feel how you hoped it would feel when you crossed the line and won the gold? Oh my gosh, yeah, more than more than that. You know, huge weight came off my... Sh- I felt on the 1,500 metres, this tonne weight literally fly up off my shoulders. As I was going around, literally wow. felt the thing. And I sat in the press conference. It was just before the four-by-one men won uh, the gold medal for Great Britain. And I said there, I can now be me. That's literally my words. So wow. powerful. Listen, we always finish with some real quick fire questions. Oh, God. <laughs> three, I don't like these. I can never think. <laughs> three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you must buy into. Um, be kind. Don't judge somebody before you know them. And um, be respectful. What advice would you give a teenage Kelly just starting out? Actually, I, if I was writing the book to her, I would tell her that you're going to go through shit, hell, life, but don't give up because you it's still you know whatever you go through is going to be the making of you I always used to say and this is not football I used to I used to think that the Olympic Games was my destiny I do not believe that now I believe it's my journey and my destiny is to talk authentically to people about that period and all the things I've gone through to help somebody else how important is legacy legacy is important when it's talked about in the right way at the right time legacy is only through history and proof and things working not just because of you know something happens example 2012 you know everyone said legacy well legacy is only now getting proven because somebody might have run there in 2012 or been inspired by 2012 and then you can say there's a legacy 
And what's your one golden rule for our listeners that want to live a high-performance life? Believe in yourself. That is the perfect way to end. Listen. <laughs> you got more? You got more? No, no. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. For being so honest and sharing a story that I know a lot of people still won't be fully across and mm-hmm. they won't fully understand. And then hearing you sit here and talk about it in such an honest way, I think it is without doubt going to do exactly what you want, which is to help people. And when you talk about, as an athlete, 80% is in your head and 20% is in your body. I think that is something that isn't just about athletics, that is about life. And it's a great message. Thank you. Damien. Jake. That was um, far more emotional than I perhaps thought it would be, you know? Yeah, I think that um, for somebody to be that open and make themselves so vulnerable, I think is really courageous and that very much came through. The big thing that stands out for me is when when you said uh, how much was ability and how much was psychology. And I sort of thought she'd go, what, 60% natural ability, 40% in the brain, 20% ability. And what I love about that is that that is a message that can be applied to any walk of life, any person listening to this. If you can get the mental side of your life and your approach to life right, then the rest will follow. I wasn't so surprised at her answer to that because it's a question that I've asked when I've worked with high-performing sports teams and I normally say how much of it is down to ability, how much of it is down to attitude, if you like. And the average in high-performance teams is 70-30. 70% of it is down to attitude and mentality and all those other softer skills. Talent gets you to the table for around 30% of it. So I think you're right. There's a really powerful message for anyone listening here that this, you know, talent gets you to the table, but it's other softer qualities that, that that get you into that realm of high performance enjoyed it oh i've loved it thanks well on behalf of myself and professor damien hughes i hope that you enjoyed that uh, don't forget you can also watch the interviews on high performance as well as listen to them and if you've come to this episode today because there is something in your life that you're unable to accept or something that you're hiding or a conversation you feel that you need to have and you're struggling with the courage or you're just finding it too hard to go there. Um, there is so much information and help courtesy of High Performance that we'd love to share with you. If you want to join the High Performance Circle, then just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com. That's thehighperformancepodcast.com. Click Circle. You'll get your invite. It's totally free. And there are keynote speeches. There are high performance boosts. There are newsletters. There is recommended reading. If you're searching and struggling, then there is so much there for you. So join our free members club, the High Performance Circle at thehighperformancepodcast.com. Thanks to Finn from Rethink Audio, to Hannah, to Will, to Eve, to Gemma. But most of all, thank you very much to Dame Kelly Holmes for coming on the High Performance Podcast and sharing so much with us. Of course, as we all know, though, the news she shared in the last few days is the most important of all. Thanks for being with us and we'll see you soon.